Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 28. Jesus says. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening at midnight at the crowing of the rooster or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. An elderly man was stopped by the police around two o'clock in the morning and he was asked where he was going at that time of the night. The man replied, I'm on my way to a lecture about alcohol abuse and its effects on the human body, as well as smoking and staying out late at night. The officer then asked, really, who's giving that lecture at this time of the night? The man replied, ah, that would be my wife. As you can imagine, there are lectures. There are warnings. Some are heeded, most are not. For those familiar with Mark chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 24, they see in these passages a kind of drug of choice. It's it's sort of like a theological intoxicant because they want to talk about the events leading up to the time of the end. And it makes perfect sense that you would want to know about these things. But you have to understand something. There is more to the chapter than just a laundry list of future things that will unfold. Jesus said, don't be deceived in verses 1 through 8. Don't be afraid in verses 9 through 13. Don't be ignorant in verses 14 through 27. And now Jesus warns us, don't be careless in verses 28 through 37. In chapter 13, Mark has Jesus making two prophecies, one about the Jewish temple, the other about the Jewish tribulation. Now, Jesus speaks of two parables, one about a fig tree, its sign and significance, and then a parable about alert servants And then he gives two reasons to remain vigilant because of the task that's at hand, because God has assigned to each believer specific tasks to accomplish. And because of the time, the servant doesn't know when the master will return. And that means that watchfulness is required. So the emphasis of the text isn't on the theological minutia of trying to discern the identity of the fig tree or even the exact date of Christ's return. The real emphasis is on knowing verses 28 and 29, watching verse 33, 34, 35, 37. Warren Wiersbe rightly says, quote, the parable of the fig tree stresses what we know. His coming is near. And the parable of the servant stresses what we don't know. 
when he will come. So coming events cast their shadows before. And so when we see some of the tribulation signs beginning in our day, like it says in Luke chapter 21, verse 28, we know that the clock is ticking. We know that the time is short. But the important thing isn't watching the calendar, but building our character. I know people will make these kinds of sound effects just for dramatic effect. I think of the Mayan calendar. People ask me, well, what do you think of the Mayan calendar? December 21st, 2012. Just ask yourself this question. How many Mayans have you met? If they were that smart, they would have pretty much taken over the world by now. You know what? I don't give it a whole lot of stock. Just like I don't think, remember the Mayans also believed that the sun was a god and that by slicing a person's chest open and, and, and then taking out their bleeding heart, they were satisfying the gods. Yeah, I, I don't give it a whole lot of credence. Jesus has provided a detailed lecture of the signs that lead up to the end of the present dispensation, the church age, the time of the glorious gospel, the message of hope, the time of preaching and salvation. We're living in a time when we have this glorious privilege. We present the claims of Christ. We remind people that they're sinners in need of a savior, that we encourage them to repent of their sin, turn to Jesus and included in that message is the truth that men will one day face Jesus as either savior or judge and the truth that Jesus will one day return and rule and reign. And it's supposed to stir up hope in the believer. And it will stir up fear in the unbeliever and in the make believer. So like Paul, the apostle, we urge all people to return to Christ, to repent, to trust God, to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul argues, he says, we go everywhere and at all times persuading men and women that if ever there was a time to get right with God, now is that time. And like John the Baptist, we must urge all people to prepare for the coming of Jesus and flee this present world's promises and the false hopes apart from God's Messiah and we sang it earlier in worship when we said, prepare the way and make no mistake about it. What each and every person in this room and within the sound of my voice, what all of you have in common is whether you know it or not, you're preparing people for eternity. You're pushing people towards the end or you're pushing them away. You're. Encouraging them to be preoccupied with what's going on in this world or you're preparing them for the next world. And so Jesus gives six, count them, six critical warnings to his disciples and to us. Number one, the signs can be determined or discerned. And number two, the signs themselves are not mysterious or inexplicable and that the events are going to unfold quickly and that the events are certain. So let's look. Number one, the signs can be discerned. Look at verse 28. Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender. That is when the sap begins to flow in the branch itself. Remember, during the winter time, the branch becomes hard as it lies dormant. And when it becomes tender, that means living sap is flowing through the branches and puts forth leaves. You know that summer is near. Now, remember what a parable is. A parable is an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. That means it comes from two words, parabole. It means to lay side by side and then draw a conclusion. And so Jesus is instructing us to learn this parable from the fig tree. The fig tree is supposed to instruct us. 
And by the way, the fig tree is a cycle of fruit production in the world in which I grew up in, both in New Orleans and in Southern California. When I would go back to New Orleans to visit my grandma, and my grandpa, my grandma and grandpa had a fig tree in the backyard. Louisiana is a great place for fig trees. They grow, they blossom because of the heat and the warmth. Now, fig trees in the Middle East require a great deal of warmth to produce leaves and fruit at the same time. Just like most trees, the presence of new shoots indicates that the winter is ending and summer is approaching what every humble shepherd boy, what every humble shepherd girl in the Middle East would be able to do is recognize that the signs of winter are over. The signs of spring and summer are coming. You don't have to have an advanced theological degree. You don't have to have a seminary class in eschatology to recognize and understand the signs of the times. And this becomes part of the point. We can understand what we've read. Jesus speaks of a tree lying dormant from a long winter. Now the tree begins to show signs of life. Some people have asked me, well, is the fig tree Israel? Not necessarily. You see, in the Bible, sometimes Israel is spoken of as a fig tree. But depending on the context, the fig tree can mean many things. Do you realize the very first tree ever mentioned in the Bible by name is the fig tree? And do you remember the circumstances and the context? Remember, Adam and Eve had sinned. And when they sinned, they realized that they were naked. And when they realized they were naked, they went to a fig tree. Because they would sow the leaves of the fig tree together. So in that particular instance, a fig tree meant becomes a type and a picture of every false religion, every man-made religion. Where a human being tries to cover themselves with their own righteousness in order to escape the scrutiny of God. Yes, Israel is sometimes used as a type and a picture In the Bible. And if that's the case, then clearly there was a time after the destruction of the temple where Israel is scattered. And then finally, a a, a coup de grace, if you will, between 131 and 134 A.D., where the Bar Kokhba revolt takes place. Jews are scattered throughout the, the, the Mediterranean and there in the Middle East, in the Levant, in that little strip of land south of Lebanon, north of Egypt. It is a wasteland. And then it unexpectedly, miraculously, comes back to life after a long, lonely winter. And so, Jesus gives us this parable. Not so much to illustrate that the fig tree is Israel, but rather to illustrate that after winter comes summer and that even the most simple person should be able to tell the difference between winter and spring and summer. And so in verse 29, it says, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near Even at the doors, what things, all of the things that we learned from from Mark chapter 13, verse one, Jesus predicted the total destruction of the temple in verses one and two checked off. Jesus predicted the appearance of false messiahs, verses four through six. Check it off. What worldwide wars, verses seven and eight. Check it off. Earthquakes and famines, verse 8. Check it off. Persecution of the godly, verse 9, verse 12, verse 13. Political and religious persecution, verse 9. Family persecution, verses 12 and through, 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 blah, 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 12 and 13. Universal preaching of the gospel in verse 10. Maybe we can't check that off just yet. The gospel has gone out. 
It has gone out on every continent. The supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit, the desecration of a third temple. In verses 14, 15, 16, unprecedented horror. Verse 17, 18, 19, 20, false rumors of Christ's return. Verse 21, 22, 23, fearful happenings in the heavens involving the sun and the moon and the stars. Cosmic events that shake people to the core. The coming of Jesus in verse 26. The gathering of Israel in verse 27. Think of it this way. Jesus predicts inevitable destruction. So watch and prepare in verses 1 through 4. International disorder. So watch and preach the gospel in verses 5 through 8. Inescapable difficulties. So watch and prevail under the pressure in verses 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Inspired declarations. So watch and perceive, understand what it is that you're looking at. Important decisions in verses 28 through 37. So watch and and pray. What's the watch word? Watch. And so he gives yet another warning. The events unfold quickly. That's what it's what it's saying. And we're going to find that out in just a moment. Look at verse 30. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Remember what we've already learned in our Bibles. When we see the term assuredly, it's Jesus's way of saying what I'm about to say to you is absolutely true. Does that mean that what he said earlier isn't true? No, he's drawing special attention. He's saying special attention alert. This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place for the unbeliever, for the skeptic, for the apostate, for the wicked unbeliever. They'll look at verse 30 and they'll say, ah, I told you Bible's not true. Jesus isn't Lord. Jesus is a false prophet. Look, read verse 30. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. He's talking to Peter, James and John and Andrew. He's giving them this briefing and Peter is dead and Andrew is dead and John is dead and all of the apostles are dead and everybody who lived in Jesus's day is dead. And when you come to 70 AD, they're dead and another million Jews died and another were taken captive and then 100 turned to 200 and 200 turned to 300 and 400 turned to 500 and 500 turned to 1,000 and it's 2,012 and see, it didn't happen. So what do you say to the skeptic? What do you say to the unbeliever? What do you say to the apostate who says Jesus is a liar and his, he's a false prophet? Here's what you say. Get my pastor's tape on this. Because when you look carefully at the text, let's read it again. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away. To whom is Jesus referring to when he says, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away. I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is fairly simple and rather straightforward. This is the generation of people when all these things Take place. This is a generation when all of these things take place. There is another possibility that makes sense historically and grammatically because you see the word translated generation is the Greek word genea. We get words like genealogy from it. As a matter of fact, the word means a begetting or a giving birth. It can also mean, depending on the context, men of the same stock or race. It can mean a family. It can mean a natural descent. This is the same word that's translated in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, a nation. So what is Jesus saying? I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus might be saying that Jews will not cease to exist As a recognizable people group until all of these things have been fulfilled. 
That's one exciting possibility. And I'm also going to suggest to you that this seems to be the meaning that Satan interprets this text. Why do I say that? Because Satan has launched an all-out campaign to destroy the Jew. Beginning in 66 AD, where the Romans attack the country. 67, 68, 69, 70, 73 AD. Over and over again, there has been this incredible, wicked Concerted effort to wipe Jews off the map. All of a sudden, during World War II, there is yet another concentrated effort to destroy the Jewish people. Why? (coughs) In part, because if Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Satan's folly is the hope. That Jews can be forever wiped off the planet because that way God could be shown to be a liar and the Bible could shown not to be true and that the events can be neglected, ignored and dismissed. So one of two things is true. He's speaking and possibly both that Jewish people will exist as a people group right up until the end and that it will take place rapidly. The events will unfold quickly. The end won't be a long, drawn-out process. In other words, just like we talked about earlier, are there always going to be wars? Yes. Are there always going to be earthquakes and famines? Yes. Are there always going to be all kinds of interesting things that are unfolding? The answer is yes. But when you see all of these things taking place all at once, it is going to occur rapidly and quickly. And by the way, since the end will not be a long, drawn out process, that's what we look for. In the first generation after the death of Jesus, Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, wrote, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you know what the holdup is? You are the holdup. I got saved March 3rd, 1973. Because God in his grace and his mercy was going to have mercy on my soul and save me. By the way, how many of you were saved in the decade of the 70s? Hands. Look around you. How many of you were saved in the decade of the 80s? Hands. Look around you. How many of you were saved in the 90s? Hands. Look around you. How many of you are saved from 2000 to 2010? Hands. Look around you. How many were saved from 2010 till now? Hands. Look around you. Oh, wait a minute. There's some hands that didn't go up. You are the holdout. You're what's prolonging this thing. Jesus is exercising patience, knowing that each day of his return, each day delayed spells opportunity for the unbeliever and repentance for the make-believer. The events will unfold quickly. And the events are certain. Look at verse 31. Look what it says. Read it for yourself. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Jesus reiterates the absolute necessity that these events are certain, that all of the predictions must come to pass. And remember the theme of Mark chapter 13. It is the literal, bodily, physical 
return of Jesus Christ in glory. The physical universe had a beginning. It has a middle and it has an end. But the words of Jesus have a life of their own and they must survive. By the way, Jesus could have said heaven and earth will pass away, but God's words will by no means pass away. But he didn't do that. Jesus said exactly what he wanted to say. My words will by no means pass away. What did he mean? Did he mean that Matthew would copy his words and Mark and Luke and John and that people would gather in every generation and they would come together and they would speak the words of Jesus? I don't think that that's what it means. I think what Jesus is doing is he's making the dramatic statement that his words carry the same weight and power as the very declaration of the word of God because he is in fact God. Can you imagine if any human being said these things? Even a powerful human being. Can you imagine if a former famous president said, heaven and earth will pass away? But my words will never pass away. And see, you're laughing because of the absurdity of the statement. That's crazy talk. It is crazy talk if it's coming from anyone other than Jesus. If Jesus were simply an ordinary man, his words would be outrageous and unbelievable and worthy of utter condemnation. And then Jesus makes the statement that the exact time is unknown in verse 32. Look what it says. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. The day and the hour are closely guarded secrets. Jesus said, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Harold Camping says, I want to know. Edgar Wise not, who predicted that Jesus would come in 1988 and then again in 1989. He said, I want to know. And by the way, when a person's name is Wise Not, that should be like a red flag to you. You should just go, you know, I'm not going to really listen to anything you have to say. Once again, the enemies of Jesus in the gospel have used this passage to suggest that Jesus was nothing more than an ordinary man with limited knowledge like ourselves. Because they look at the passage instead of focusing on, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels, check, nor the son, whoops, nor the son. How is it possible for the father to know something that the son doesn't know? Some people also suggest that Jesus somehow emptied himself of his attributes of deity. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that Jesus is one person with two natures, that he is completely human, that he is completely God. And because Jesus is not a lesser God and and because there are not two gods or three gods, how are we to understand this passage? I get this question, by the way, all the time. So how are we to understand it? Why doesn't Jesus know the time of his own advent? I think that the answer in part might be found in John chapter 15, verse 15, where it says that the servant knows not what his Lord does. And as the perfect servant, Jesus It was not given to him to know the time of the second coming. And as the eternal living Lord of heaven, he knows the answer. But it wasn't given to him to know it for the purpose of revealing it to others. So now I want you to think that through. If the angels don't know and if Jesus don't doesn't know, then the next crazy guy from the pulpit who says, wow, I know, then you should get up and walk out and never go back to that church. I'm sick and tired of date setters and date suggesters. 
James Brooks writes, it's not a denial of our Lord's divine omniscience, but simply an assertion that in the economy of human redemption, it wasn't for him to know the times or the seasons which the father has appointed by his own authority. That's from Acts chapter one, verse seven. Jesus knew that he would come again and he spoke often of his second advent, but it did not fall to his office as son to determine the exact date of his return. And hence he would hold it up before his followers as the subject of constant expectation and desire. This information is supposed to flood you with a profound sense of wanting to live each moment like it could be your last. We used to sing when I was a kid. The master went away from us 2000 years ago. He left us with his promise to return. How our hearts do long for him. We miss the master. So we must keep the faith and let the fire burn. We're hard pressed to come up with an answer that satisfies everyone. But whatever the answer to this question is, the time of the second coming is unknown. If no one knows, if the angels in heaven don't know, if Jesus was reluctant and refused to voluntarily impart the information to Peter, James, John and Andrew, it is ridiculous to conclude that so-called prophecy teachers think that they can come up with the answer. You know, I have a file. In the history of the church, literally thousands of people have made hundreds of false predictions that date from A.D. 44 all the way to the present time. Again, Harold Camping. Again, Edgar Wisenot. Date setters usually have an elaborate scheme for their failed prophecies. Hippolytus calculated that 5,500 years separated Adam and Christ and that the life of the world was 6,000 years. And so in 234 A.D., he got out his primitive calculator and he determined that there were 200 years left in human history. Was he right or was he wrong? Wrong. Christopher Columbus in 1490 See, most people don't realize that Christopher Columbus didn't just embark on an adventure because he thought it would be great to have a great adventure. Christopher Columbus literally believed that the end of the world was drawing near and that God had commissioned him to bring the gospel all around the world. If you go to 1500, 1550, 1560, 1590, 1600, 1660, go back 1000 A.D. predictions made. William Miller, 1843 and 1844. Thomas Parker, 1859. Charles Taze Russell predicted the rapture in 1910 based on his his false following of William Miller. Then he predicted that it would take place in 1914. The late Moses David, or better known as David Berg, who founded the Children of God, predicted that in the 1970s, a comet would rush towards the United States. And in the middle of the 1970s, it would hit our planet and disco would die forever. <laughs> yeah, he was right about disco not lasting. But he was wrong about the comet. Those who practice this kind of eschatological divination using complex calendar codes typically don't even know about calendars. You know, I've made it a study. I, I'm fascinated by Babylonian calendars and I'm fascinated by Roman calendars and I'm fascinated by Greek calendars. And the reason why I'm fascinated by this, many of you know that I collect coins and as you know, in coins in the ancient world, they didn't say, you know, 450 B.C. The way they calculated time was usually regnal ascension. That means when an emperor took a particular position at a particular time. Most date setters have no idea that from 100 B.C. to 2000 A.D., a lot of strange things have happened. For instance, did you know that in 46 B.C., the year was 445 days long and we don't know why? 
Do you realize that there was no year zero? They just didn't include it. In 1582, when we switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, it went from 360 days to 365 days. There's a list of 242 dates from 44 A.D., which is Thudius, who declares himself to be the Messiah. He takes 400 people into the desert. He's beheaded by the Roman authorities, according to Josephus. And then, almost without exception, there have been wacky, crazy people who have predicted the end of the world. Here's what someone told me a long time ago, and I never forget it. And it's been healthy and helpful for me my whole life. He said, Gino, prepare your life in such a way that God is calling you to a lifetime of ministry. But plan and live your life as if Jesus could come back at any moment. And this is why Jesus says we're compelled to watch and to pray. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, I want to warn you. Take heed. That's what take heed means. Take heed means warning. Watch. Pray. For you do not know when the time is. What could be clearer than that? Jesus doesn't say take heed. Watch and pray. For you know exactly the time. You don't. Now I don't want to see a show of hands. But how many of you, if an angel came to you. And said, I'm going to reveal to you the exact day, the exact hour, the exact year of your death. I'm going to tell you the year, the day, the hour. How many of you would want to know? As you're calculating that in your heart, if you knew that information... Would it change the way you watch? Would it change the way you pray? Would you begin to take seriously your life? Would it take on a whole new dimension? Or does the reality that you don't know the year and you don't know the month and you don't know the day, does it create within you maybe a false sense of security? Maybe. But it also gives you a great sense of enjoyment. You can live your life as if the Broncos are going to win this afternoon. Because you know there's a game. So those who practice this kind of crazy divination are in big trouble. So Jesus couldn't make it any more clear. Watch and pray. And he gives the reason for watching and praying Because you don't know when the time is, and that's what we've been worshiping. We watch and we pray, and the reason is because Jesus knew that there's something really wrong with us. We're given to apathy and indifference and lethargy. The warning is given because we have this dangerous habit of falling asleep. I see it all the time in church. The moment I mention the word Jesus, sin, salvation, get right with God. I mention the Broncos, everybody perks up. Jesus says it's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. The Lord Jesus provides a word picture that everyone, everyone would have understood. Everyone would have understood that if you are a rich landowner and you take a trip to Spain or you take a trip to Rome or you go east to Babylon or all the way to India, communication is difficult. And because communication is difficult, you don't always know everything that is going on. But he describes a person who leaves for a far country. And in this case, he's the man who leaves and the far country is heaven. And the master gives authority to his servant. And look what the text says. And to each his work. You've been given a task. And by the way, what is that work? What is the work that Jesus has entrusted to you? Is it 
the task of worship? Is it the task of discipleship? Is it the task of evangelism? What is it that God has called you to do? What is the meaningful contribution that you make to the human race? How is it that what you do makes this place a little bit better place to live because of the health that you bring, because of whatever it is that God has entrusted to you? But here becomes the point. The master gives the authority of the servants to watch and not to neglect the work. Work was given by the master to his servants in his absence. And the trusted servants were expected to fulfill their responsibilities and reap the reward when the master returns. And clearly, the doorkeeper, the doorkeeper was the lookout. The doorkeeper was to keep watch. Have you heard any news? Have we heard is the master coming closer and closer and closer? And usually they had means of communication. Is he a thousand miles away? Is he 500 miles away? Is he 200 miles away? Look what it says in verse 35. Watch, therefore, for you don't know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, in the parable, Jesus mentions four periods of time in the ancient world. Evening, midnight, dawn, morning. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus expects everyone to stay awake every moment of every day? That can't be it. If you stayed up for just two days in a row, all of the visions in Mark 13 would come to pass. You'd go. You would be in an altered state of consciousness. You would see things that really aren't there and you would hear things that really aren't there. He doesn't mean never rest. So what does he mean? Jesus is making the point that the servants are to retain a constant vigil and be in a constant state of readiness for the master's return. Some of you, like me, have a son or a daughter or a mother or a father overseas. And when you have a mother, a father, a husband, a son overseas, you wait for them to return. You prepare for their return. You make sure that they have a home to come home to. You make sure they have a place to sleep and food to eat. You long, you sense the expectation. You want them to come back. And that becomes the point. You set a vigil and your life begins to revolve around when that person is coming home. But will the coming of Jesus be inconvenient for you? Is it interfering in your well-laid plans? Is it wrong, by the way, for you to want to be married? Of course not. Is it wrong for you to want to have a job? Of course not. Is it wrong for you to want to pay down your bills? Of course not. You are to work in the work that God has entrusted to you, but you can't allow the work to mess up your priorities because if your priority doesn't consist in the reality of who Jesus is and your obligation and responsibility to, to, to him, then your priorities are messed up. Will the coming of Jesus be inconvenient for you? Will you need a few moments to freshen up? Will you need a few moments to clean the temple? Will you need a few moments to clear out the cobwebs that have grown near the altar of your heart? This is the warning. The warning is clean out the cobwebs right now. Freshen up the temple. The master went away from us 2,000 years ago. He left us with his promise to return. How our hearts do long for him. But look at the warning that Jesus gives in verse 36. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. Do you know what narcolepsy is? Narcolepsy is a... It's a nervous disorder. It's a nervous system disorder. It is a condition where you suddenly and unexpectedly find yourself asleep. 
We don't exactly know all of the causes. There's a lot of things that have been been introduced as possibilities that might cause this sort of disorder. But there's a spiritual narcolepsy. Where people fall asleep when it comes to God and when it comes to Christ, they fall asleep when you mention sin. They fall asleep when you mention the Savior. They fall asleep because they're preoccupied with this world and what this world has to offer. And what happens? What happens when a person begins to care only about this world? How will I get a job? How will I pay the bills? And how will I make the mortgage? It's not wrong for you to want to have a job and it's not wrong for you to want to pay your bills. But we have to come to a place where instead of being short sighted and apathetic. That we look for the master. Some of us experience spiritual narcolepsy. Not simply because we're apathetic and indifferent. Sometimes it's because we need to change our mind. We've we've grown oblivious to the fact that God knows who we are and what we're thinking and what we need. We, we, We lose hope that God will somehow forget his promises and his warnings. We entertain false notions about God and then we entertain false notions about ourselves. We think that God will overlook our wickedness, our apathy, our indifferences and our lethargy. We think, well, I'm healthy and I'm blessed. Why would God allow a healthy and a blessed person to continue in health and blessing if there was something wrong? But there is something wrong. There's something wrong inside of our hearts. We deceive ourselves and we kid ourselves thinking that there's something about us that's worthy of honor and praise and glory. And then we remember that that's just simply not true, that we're sinners saved by grace. And so Jesus says in verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all. Look what it says. Not me. This is Jesus. What I say to you, Peter, James, John and Andrew. And now he says, I'm saying it to everyone. I'm saying it to everyone in every generation. Watch. The word is Gregorio. It means to stay awake. It means to keep alert. It means to be vigilant. But it also contains the idea of passion and motivation. You know what I've never seen? I've never seen as I've boarded planes, especially in the middle of the flight, Or in the takeoff and the landing. I've never seen the pilot asleep. Going. They're alert. Awake. Ready to fly. I got to go to a Bronco game earlier this year. You know what I didn't see in the the stadium? Not a single person sleeping. When when the quarterback would throw a pass and the receiver would get the. uh, You know. Can you imagine these people are jumping up. They're shouting. They're screaming. And a, a guy going. I guess it's possible. I guess you could have one beer too many. I guess you could pass out. I guess it's possible. But there are certain things that people, when they go to a particular event, they decide and they determine in their mind that they're going to stay awake. I understand that some of you sleep late and I understand that some of you work all night. And I understand that sometimes it is a challenge to come to church. And I make a conscientious effort to try and keep you awake. Recently, a storm swept through the Atlantic seaboard. You know that millions lost power. Hurricane Sandy, thousands lost homes. Some people lost their lives. But it reminded me of a story I heard a long time ago. I remember about a man who lived on Long Island. And he was able to satisfy a lifelong ambition. And he purchased for himself a fine barometer. Do you guys know what a barometer is? It's it's almost like a thermometer, but it points to weather settings. And back in the 1800s, it was the cat's meow. It was just the thing to have. And um, he finally got his barometer. It arrived at his home and he was so disappointed because the needle was stuck on the sector marked hurricane. 
And after shaking it, he shook it. He vigorously just shook it and shook it, but it wouldn't change. And he wrote a scorching letter to the store and he was furious and he insisted that he get his money back. And the following morning on his way to his office in New York, he mailed the letter. And that evening when he got home, he discovered that the barometer was missing. And so was his home. Because the hurricane had struck. Because it was pointing at exactly to the place in order to give the warning. In Mark chapter 13, where is the needle pointing? Watch. For your own sake, it says in verse 33. Watch for the word's sake, it says in verse 34. Watch for him, it says in verse 35. Watch for his own sake, it says in verse 37. In 1857, right before the Civil War, Great and Guinness wrote, quote, O Christian, watch, for God commands you. Watch against sin, in armor, in earnest, in prayer. Watch against temptation. Watch against the world. Watch against the flesh. Watch against the devil. Watch for souls with zeal. Watch with love. Watch with care. Watch for Christ affectionately, patiently, unto the end and mark you. When he who shall come does come, he will call you to himself. And so will you ever be with the Lord. Look up. Stay awake. Keep watching. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that. It's so easy to look at the calendar. And it's so difficult to look at our character. It's so easy to look at the signs of the times. And it's so hard to reflect. On the apathy and the indifference in our own heart. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would awaken with in each and every one of us a deep zeal and desire. To do what it is that you called us to do. And to be found in the place that you called us to be. And that we could be about our father's business. So that when Jesus comes, we can say. Everything is exactly as you want it. Welcome. Welcome back. In Jesus name. Amen.